Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapare, that's Thursday, the 16th of June. Call Nathan Rarere, 10 Coming up, the UK's asylum seeker deportation flights hit a last minute snag. Health experts here fear that Māori could be facing a long, a looming long COVID crisis. We'll quiz the Deputy Prime Minister about the Cabinet reshuffle and why does the government only trust a handful of MPs with the top four portfolios. And the doctor shortage in Southland is seeing patients having to travel hundreds of kilometres just to get a checkup. We are seeing issues like not being able to get in to see their GP. Certainly hear lots of stories about people in certain areas where they can't even enrol with a practice which means that if they get sick, the options are really just to go to the hospital. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. We've got lots of things for you prepared today, including the incredible story of a team-building exercise gone not quite right. Have a think about that. Have you been on those? Uh, well, look, the British. Uh, we start, though, with this one. The British government's policy of bundling asylum seekers onto flights from Britain to Rwanda has hit a snag with European Court of Human Rights ruling against it. The first scheduled flight was cancelled at the last minute, but both the government of Britain and that of Rwanda are still very committed to the policy. We will cross to our correspondent in London shortly, but first, here's the BBC's Mark Lobel with this report. Going nowhere. Boris Johnson's Rwanda plan to cut immigration grounded for now. This flight was originally meant to take over 100 asylum seekers to Rwanda, then just a handful and finally none following a series of legal challenges. The charter plane has now returned to its base in Spain. It's particularly galling for the government, coming on the day more than 300 people arrived in Dover after attempting to cross the channel in small boats, the exact journey this policy is meant to deter. It's a real victory for humanity and decency and the European Court of Human Rights did what the British courts should have done and said that people should not be sent to Rwanda when there are serious issues. But Britain's partner in this, the Rwandan government, remains on board. We are undeterred. We are committed to this partnership and we stand ready to welcome the migrants when when they do arrive uh, in Rwanda. So what happened? The European Court of Human Rights, which is separate to the European Union and to which the UK is a signatory, has the final say in human rights issues. It ruled asylum applicants would face a real risk of irreversible harm in Rwanda, contradicting a ruling by judges in London who had found no immediate risk to those being sent there. But Home Secretary Priti Patel has hit back. She said that it is very surprising that the European Court of Human Rights has intervened despite repeated earlier success in our domestic courts. By continuing down this path for deportations to Rwanda's capital Kigali, the UN's refugee agency says the UK is avoiding its moral responsibilities and breaking global rules. We're very concerned that it breaches the international obligation for every country to allow an asylum seeker to have their claim assessed on a speedy, 
and fair system within that, that country where protect, protection has been sought. The UK public is divided over the issue and Boris Johnson says his government may very well have to change the law to help it with the policy. I think the government is surprised and disappointed by the ruling made last night. In my experience as a minister, it's the quickest time uh, I've ever known a, a, an ECHR to consider a particular case. Uh, but nevertheless, it had been through British courts and uh, that's why I think people will be surprised. The plan has not yet got off the ground, but is not dead. Attention now turns to how judges will rule when they examine the entire Rwanda removals policy next month. Mm, well, joining me now from London is our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali. Morena, Nate. Hey, so can you tell us, uh, just explain to us what, what happened there? So first off, I mean, we're hearing in that passage uh, package just then a bit about what the government plan was. But this is a new immigration policy, which they're saying will deter people traffickers. And they're touting it as a way to deal with people coming to the UK illegally or in dangerous ways. So over the past few months, over the past few years, there has been an increase in people crossing the channel in smaller boats. And especially in the past few weeks, it was, it's been reported that over 400 had tried to cross on small boats um, just to the UK yesterday and a further 300 today. But this, this plan is what they're saying is the solution. So it's saying they're trying to stop people um, cross the channel in illegal, dangerous or unnecessary methods. Um, and it does involve these flights. It involves sending migrants and refugees off to Rwanda. Then when they get there, they could be granted permanent refugees status in Rwanda or they could be uh, they could try for asylum somewhere else as well essentially what it looks like is the UK government trying to make uh, displaced people someone else's problem well that's what people are saying so they've already paid 120 million pounds in upfront costs to Rwanda so they're they're pushing for this uh, and Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, yesterday was on breakfast shows across the country. Um, she refused to say how many people the government were hoping to put on these flights, but she did say it would be thousands across the year. And, I mean, there has been a lot of opposition, not just from um, the opposition, but from the general public as well. Um, these cases, as we hear, are being heard in the High Court. Um, and yes, it, just yesterday, a big group of bishops across the country sent an open letter to the Prime Minister and the government saying that they oppose the plan as well. So just the one thing that I'm trying to get my head around here, Ellie, is um, the, the people that are being put on these, fl- what, you know, the names to be put on these flights, were they, yes, please, please put me on this flight? No. So this is these are people who've come to the UK to um, seek asylum or come to the UK as, as refugees. And so it's essentially saying they will be um, taken and they can apply in Rwanda, they're saying this isn't... Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, came out yesterday and said that there are um, plenty of, of legal ways to apply to come to the UK. And they're saying that's why they're saying that this will um, deter right. people or hoping that this would deter people. Um, so as we were hearing just then, though, so last night was meant to be the first of these flights, over 100. Then we heard there were 37 people on it. Uh, and then yesterday morning we were hearing there were seven people. And after legal challenges, uh, that went down to five and then after the European Court for Human Rights stepped in it was 20 minutes before that flight was due to leave um, and they said that uh, the one of the asylum seekers on the flight had a legal injunction and so the lawyers for the other people on the plane argued um, that they would also 
be able to have this and so therefore um, the flight was stopped. Ah, okay. Hey, let, let, let's jump to um, Brexit because, you know, Brexit news, uh, it never stops, even though it's bubbling away, sort of it's kind of simmering in the, the background there on the slow cooker, I guess. This time the EU's launched legal action of, of, the, of the Northern Ireland plan for Brexit. Can you tell us what that is and what they're trying to stop? Yes, yeah. So this this is to do this is to do with Brexit, and so it's to do with the fact that um, the UK government announced that it's going to override a Brexit deal that it signed on Northern Ireland. So this this deal that they signed was called the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, signed between the UK and the EU. It was agreed in 2019. It came into force in 2021, and it, it basically deals with um, special trading arra- arrangements for Northern Ireland. That's that's because Northern Ireland is the only bit of the UK that has this land border with an EU country, which is the Republic of Ireland. Pre-Brexit, this was no problem. So EU trade rules applied, things like um, meats and cheese and eggs that have different um, quality controls and import restrictions. But because the UK was part of that, it didn't really matter. You didn't have to have it. So you after Brexit, they had to draw up this new agreement for the land border. Uh, and the UK has now said that it's planning to, to ditch parts of this deal. Um, and so the, the EU is saying it can't. It's going to be breaking international law. Um, today, the European Commission Vice President, Maros Sefcovic, has come out uh, and, and said quite strongly that this, this is illegal. He said there's no legal or political justification whatsoever for unilaterally changing an international agreement. So let's call a spade a spade. This is illegal. Yeah, it's like we all agreed to work on a group project and now Britain's going, ah, oh, now you guys finish it. If you, that's <laughs> what it, what it seems a little like there. Ellie, thank you very much for clearing that up from us. There she is, live from London. Ellie J. And if you are listening to us live, the time is 14 minutes past five. You're on first up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Remember, if you missed the show or there's bits you want to hear, you can just download the first up podcast now because uh, we've got it back up and running. And uh, you can listen to anything on the show and play it back. I just wanted to know this morning uh, of many issues. If you hear them, just you know, always let it fly. We love to hear what your thoughts are. Two one zero one or email first up at rnz.co.nz. But we we're about to hear from our correspondent in Europe, and, and included in there is a story about a bit of a disastrous team building day that's gone on. So I want to know: Have you been on those? You know, the ones, the one where the whole office has to go out for the day. If you have a story of it, plain boring ones. And I think I'm probably thinking very much of Michael Scott from Dunder Mifflin in the office of things that he did. Uh, but I remember we went on one uh, for an old radio company I worked at, and our boss went, "Hey, I'll buy everyone Sam Booker." Yeah, and um, there were curtains that caught fire, uh, and we'll uh, get to more of that later. But let's go to Europe now, uh, where France continues to struggle with the Burkini, and Italy is shaken by, oh, this is a horrible, horrible case of a mother who killed her four-year-old daughter. We'll get to that soon. Joining me now from Sweden is our correspondent, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. Kia ora, doctor. How are you? Fine, thank you, Morena. Hey, let's start in Finland, though. The the United Nations committees found the government there has violated the political rights of the country's indigenous people, the Sami. Tell us this. Well, the 
The findings were made against um, Finland by the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Now, the controversy is about interference from Finland's Supreme Administrative Court in the 2015 Sami Parliament elections. The court ruled that dozens of people who identified themselves as Sami can be added to the electoral roll to vote in the elections. Finland has a 10,000-strong Sami community, and many think they alone should be able to decide who is Sami and who isn't, and that the Finnish state shouldn't have any say in the matter at all. Wow. Um, This story out of Italy is just horrific. Uh, The murder of a four-year-old girl by her mother. Can you tell us about this? Well, a woman in Sicily admitted to police to killing her four-year-old daughter, having initially claimed the child was taken by hooded kidnappers for a ransom. On Monday, 23-year-old mother Martina Patti told police three hooded men, one of which was armed, opened the door of a car and snatched the child after she collected her from nursery school. The body of the daughter, Elena Del Pozo, was found a day later. Police quickly ruled out Patty's story during and during interrogation. The mother admitted to the killing of her daughter, which police describe as a horrendous crime committed by someone who didn't know why she'd done it. Yeah, uh, Let's go to France now. And uh, this is really about what can you wear at the beach or not. France continuing to decide what a Muslim woman can wear at the beach. But city leaders in Grenoble, I hope I said that right, aren't so keen. Well, France's highest court has heard an appeal by Grenoble City over a nationwide swimming pool ban on the bikini swimsuit. Now, Grenoble authorities are challenging an administrative court's ruling, banning them from allowing people to wear the full body swimsuit, which is typically worn by some Muslim women to uphold their faith. Grenoble Municipal Council sparked nationwide controversy in May by relaxing its rules on the swimwear allowed in public pools. Now, since 2016, several French uh, authorities have attempted to outlaw the wearing of the bikini in public places. Thinking, how do you wear a wetsuit with a hood? Never mind. Okay, we'll carry on. Um, Now, this, (laughs) this is a story, Anita, I really wanted to get to. Uh, It's many people's nightmare, um, not so much that people's feet got burnt here, but having to be on one of those corporate team building days. Tell us about the corporate away day and what's happened in Switzerland. Well, 25 people are being treated for burns in northern Switzerland after they walked across hot coals as part of a team building exercise. Um, The 30... 13 of them were taken to hospital and uh, were treated for um, severe injuries after the incident on Tuesday evening. Now, police said the group uh, was asked to walk over a bed of coals as part of this team building exercise. And um, it was several metres long. And then the group uh, felt pain shortly afterwards. That's amazing. And I always think the best bit about this is how do they tenuously link it back to this will make you better at sales, eh? <laughs> I have no idea about that. No idea. <laughs> their, feet, their feet certainly felt the consequences of that mindless um, team-building exercise. Yeah, they did. Thank you very much, Dr. Anita purcell Sherland. there out of Sweden. My goodness. Yeah. Let us know, have you been, I don't know if you've burnt your feet on one of those, but 2101 if you would uh, like to tell us about team building days that you've been on. 
Uh, um, yes, uh, it's nearly 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here with First Up here on RNZ National. So still to come on the show, we're going to uh, get some local uh, reporting out there, the local news and from LDA reporter Steve Forbes in South Auckland. And uh, given how long the sector's been warning about a shortage of GPs, we're going to ask the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson, how did it get this bad? It's local democracy reporting program time now. This morning we're in South Auckland with Steve Forbes. He's been investigating a big issue that we're going to take a a look at further uh, later in the program. The shortage of doctors, which means that people are having to travel massive distances just to get a checkup. Uh, Well, a chronic shortage of GPs in South Auckland has been adding to the pressure on healthcare providers who are attempting to deal with a massive surge in patients during the winter flu season. So... Uh, I spoke to South Auckland GP Dr Api Talamatonga on Monday. Uh, he's the chairman of the Pacifica GP network. Uh, and he said to me doctors on the front line in counties Manukau are under serious pressure and facing burnout. When I spoke to him on Monday, he said he'd started work at 9am on Monday and he had to keep working till 10.30 at night and he was still filling out paperwork and prescriptions. Wow. He said he was already fully booked until the end of the week. He said there was such a chronic shortage of doctors that those who are working, obviously in the same situation as himself, are facing burnout. And he said it's a bit of a perfect storm because there's increased patient demand due to winter illnesses with influenza and also now we've got COVID on top of that, yeah. as well as people seeking immunisations and checkups after the easing of COVID restrictions. But I found a report by the Medical Council of New Zealand, their workforce survey from last year, and it showed County Manukau had just 6.7% of all of the country's GPs, despite having 11.7% of the country's population. So it's the biggest shortage in the whole of New Zealand. Yeah, me and you, we better uh, hit the books and go back and learn how to be GPs, Steve. We'll get, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I can do the one, say, ah, okay, that's all I've got. Okay, um, let, let's stick with the, the medical field, though. Slightly different, yeah. uh, Middlemore Hospital. What, what's happening with the earthquake strengthening uh, there? Oh, well, I spoke to National Party Health spokesman Shane Retty, uh, and he, he was calling on the government to come up with a credible plan to replace an earthquake-prone building at Middlemore uh, that was dubbed a potential health risk in, or potential public risk in 2018. The Galbraith building is currently home to the hospital's maternity services and birthing unit. So it's also home to radiology and a number of other departments, but independent report in 2018 found the building was earthquake-prone and estimates of the times said the repairs would take two to three years to complete and it would cost about $74 million to repair it. Mm. But in November, County's Manukau DHB decided to replace the building, so they took into account the different changes in healthcare, the age of the building, and the fact it contained asbestos. However, they said a new building could be more than 15 years away. So I went back to speak to them about it, and when I spoke to Shane Reddy, he said, the projected time frame, like replacing it in 15 years' time, he said, was just ridiculous. He said there needs to be a credible plan to replace it. And he said he questioned the government's priorities. He said the fact that Middlemore is one of the busiest hospitals in the country with a high-needs population means such projects can't just be put on the back burner. And he said if Andrew Little hadn't spent $486 million on the health reforms, maybe the Galbraith building could have been replaced sooner. Yeah, should have got some jib too. Um, right. Let's uh, let, let's talk about something which always makes Auckland motorists go, "Hey, uh, tell me about Auckland motorists possibly in for more tolls." Uh, yeah, that was it's the mill the on again off again mill road project. So there was a briefing paper to the Minister of Transport, Michael Wood, earlier this year. It was from Waka Katahi, and they said tolls might be used to pay for 
Auckland Mill Road project. Uh, the Wakakatahi report from January this year released under the Official Information Act said the road's part of a network of transport projects planned for South Auckland to support the area's growth, but it said the use of tolls on Mill Road would require political support and Waka Katahi would explore it with Auckland Transport during the next phases of the project. Oh, right, we'll look for that. And while we're having, speaking of motorists, I like this one. The story you've been looking to about the rent-a-hybrid scheme. I like the maths on this thing. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, so the Manukau Urban Maori Authority is seeking to ramp up the scheme it has uh, to get more South Auckland families out of their gas guzzlers and into hybrid vehicles. Uh, under the scheme, a whānau paid $95 a week for a Toyota Corolla station wagon, and the hybrid vehicle lease includes a warrant of fitness, registration, insurance, servicing and repairs. So uh, Manukau Urban Maori Authority Group Operations Manager John Cameron said there's currently about 20 vehicles in the Waka Aranui scheme, and he said it grew out of a partnership with Toyota, which provides the cars, as well as support from Akina Foundation, MB, the Tyndall Foundation and Auckland Transport. I spoke to Bobby Lee Edwards, who signed up for the scheme in December last year. Yeah. And she said she'd been considering taking out finance to buy a car, but she said she thought the Mooma scheme was a better option. So uh, she said under the scheme, she doesn't have to worry about the cost of servicing a car, paying for the next warrant of fitness or the insurance. And uh, Mooma's general manager of Farno Services, Veronica Hanare said to me that too many families in South Auckland get into financial difficulties through getting finance for their cars through third-tier lenders. So she said instead of paying crippling interest rates under the Waka Aranui scheme, it gives people another option. That's South Auckland's LDR reporter Steve Forbes. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 16th of June. Quite a big day for sporty folk and sport-adjacent folk as far as birthdays go. Roberto Duran, Hands of Stone, good nickname, 71 years old today. Tupac Shakur, not with us now. Uh, He was born 51 years ago. And a man that was born in 1959 on this day was probably one of, I think, Generation X, uh, probably one of the TV heroes of the time, the ultimate warrior. His name was James Brian Helwig. Interesting man. Uh, His father and his grandfather both died in their 50s, and so did he, uh, of the exact same thing. Heart attack, uh, horribly, a horrible um, tragedy, um, hereditary tragedy there for their family, all dying around the age of 55 uh, for the ultimate warrior. Uh, Born on this day in 1966, surfer Mark Oki Okalupo. Gee, they do nicknames well. Uh, a couple of rugby players for you here. South African captain Sia Kulisi is 31 years old today and Akira Yuani of the All Blacks turns 27. On this day in 1979, Joy Division released their debut album called Unknown Pleasures. Uh, on this day in 1903, the Ford Motor Company was founded. And I was thinking about Ford Falcons, and I know that, remember, they stopped uh, their production in Australia not so long ago. The last uh, Ford Falcon ever made was a blue one. It was a Falcon XR6, and it rolled off the production line on October the 7th in 2016. And on this day in 1903, Pepsi-Cola trademark was registered with the US Patent Office. The name was derived from Pepsin and Cola, uh, which it's made of. Pepsi is now the third most popular carbonated drink in India, uh, behind Sprite and Thumbs Up. There you are, that's your news for today.
Joining us now from the business team is Anan Zaki. Kia ora, Anan, how are you? Morena, uh, Morena Nathan. Look, Sia Khaleesi, what a player. I know. One of my favourite players. Yeah. It was one of those, oh, I hate that we won. I like that he won. Oh, I hate that we like, you know what I mean? It was one of them. He's a he's a good, I like him. Tell totally. me about this What this thing about your fridge, people's fridges being used by cyber criminals. How so? Well, this isn't what I had in mind when I was uh, getting excited about the prospect of smart appliances many years ago. But yes, uh, your fridge, uh, this is a warning from a cybersecurity expert who says your smart fridge or... Or actually any smart appliance that could be like air conditioners, TVs, toasters, and I've seen some washing machines connected to the internet too. The internet uh, of it things, could, it's called. The, yeah. the internet of things, yes. yes. And it could be used against you by hacking into your business or home network. So author and cybersecurity expert uh, Daniel Watson, he's the good man uh, giving us the heads up. He's saying that smart appliances connected to the internet, um, they'll have embedded electronics that can provide a shortcut to entry for cyber criminals and he says it's not as rare as you think he says you've got a higher chance of suffering a cyber attack than you do say a fire or flood so basically cyber criminals and and other malicious actors uh, they can turn your appliances into slaves and put them to work by sending infected messages and malware in order to gain data for things like identity theft or uh, for use in denial of service attacks. And the first uh, such report of such an attack uh, was as early as 2013 when a fridge was used to send more than 750,000 malicious emails. I'm sorry, uh, so just... the sentence you just said, like, try, let's drop you back into 1986 and have you explain <laughs> that to people, and they would look at you like, what? <laughs> I, I know, this is, uh, the future is exciting, right? But no, your fridge is going to be used to uh, send uh, malicious emails. This is the future that uh, we were all excited about. Uh, <laughs> But look, if you do own a smart appliance, uh, you're almost entirely reliant on the manufacturer to design, install and maintain the security of the appliance too. And if you do suspect that uh, your appliance has been hacked, I look, I, I think it's just fairly obvious, but just disconnect it from the internet. Uh, Daniel Watson, he's given us some tips as well to, uh, to stay safe, uh, basically first shop for reliable, well-known brands, secure brands, back up and get insured. And finally, if possible, uh, segregate your network from uh, certain appliances or machinery. But I'll tell you what, I'm a bit worried now uh, about uh, the prospect of buying a smart appliance. Maybe it's not as good as me, uh, as good as what some some people might have thought. Yeah, now I'm worried about just being knocked on by my fridge and it's just telling other fridges uh, all my people do is collect those little sachets of the extra soy sauce from St. Pierre's and they, <laughs> they keep them in me and they never throw them out, especially those little garlic packets as well, you guys. Come and help me. Hey, guess what? There's a cheese slice down the back. It's just stuck on the head. I think that's it. A lot of half, so a lot of half bottles of sauce. It's not exciting in my fridge, Anand. It's not. Yeah, look... Uh, I certainly don't want the world to find out what's in my fridge, no, that's for sure. There we go. Thank you very much. But the world can find out uh, what is happening with our business team and what news uh, they are looking at, including apparently Sky TV is going, 
Yeah. Doesn't want to buy MediaWorks anymore. You can find out perhaps why. I'm morning report this morning at 10.27. To the money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is worth the following. 62.41 US cents, 89.8 Kiwi FM. Sorry, that's an old habit from when you used to work in radio. Uh, no, that's Australian cents. 60.06 euro cents, 51.74 British pence, 4.19 yuan, 83.93 Japanese yen. If you're buying Russian rubles, why? Uh, and also, uh, if you are going to Rwanda, uh, your New Zealand dollar will score you 637.45 Rwandan francs. Health experts are worried that a long COVID crisis looms for Māori, which could cause many to be unable to work or get the help that they need. The experts worried that deep-seated inequities will only worsen and that the promised government strategy to help cope is coming too slowly. Here's Māori news reporter Jamie Tahana. Jenny Smeaton runs operations for Runanga o Ngāti Toa in Porirua. She's increasingly worried about long COVID, people who have persistent symptoms like serious fatigue, brain fog or headaches months after infection. We are seeing a number of patients coming through that already had long-term health conditions um, or were already suffering from you know, a number of illnesses that have now had COVID and with, because of that, um, they'll have long-term conditions as a result now of COVID. So yeah, it, it's snowballing. Victoria University epidemiologist Mona Jeffries fears there could be an equity disaster waiting. Māori have been infected with COVID at some of the highest rates, and that could see long COVID hitting hard. Where the inequities lie is that we know that Māori do not get the same level of access to care as non-Māori. We know that taking time off work if you are in a lower paid job, which many Māori are, is, has much more significant impact. So we know that the social and financial impacts are going to be much bigger. Dr Jeffries is the co-leader of Ngā Kawe Kawe o Mate Corona, a study into the long-term impacts of COVID here. It's so far found that 45% of Māori with long COVID say their usual activities have been affected to a moderate or extreme level. About 20% have severe pain and about 10% have difficulty moving. That could create severe strain on a health system already not delivering for Māori. When you start with an unequitable situation and put on top of it an unequitable illness, then we're going to just magnify those differences uh, in the coming months to years. And that, she says, requires a Māori-specific plan and policy. It would also involve social and health support that, right now, isn't there. Associate Health Minister Pini Hinare says government agencies are developing plans for long COVID, with equity a key focus. But they're still trying to work out exactly what the illness is. The Ministry of Health says it's considering the interests of Māori under its treaty obligations. But that's been said before. Last year, the Waitangi Tribunal was scathing in its review of the COVID response, finding that, quote, in many instances, consideration was where the Crown determined its treaty obligations ended. The National Māori Council brought that claim. Its secretary, Peter Fraser, says there's still nothing that allays his fears about Māori needs being ignored. We don't want to risk COVID and long COVID being the next rheumatic fever, when as a country we can't even beat the existing rheumatic fever.
And this is one of the issues we have with co-design. In many cases within government, co-design is seen to be desirable, not mandatory. And that's just not acceptable. In Porirua, Jenny Smeaton says Bayamari for Māori approaches are vital. We're not quite sure what's to come, but we know that it's not going to be great and we need to prepare the best that we can. And if we have a specific programme of work targeted for our whānau, we'd be able to try and curb the impacts that we'll, they'll likely suffer from, from the fallout from this. Penny Henare says he's ensuring the new Māori Health Authority has a heavy hand as plans are developed. We race towards 6 o'clock. It is 21 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. Good choice. Still to come, we'll be speaking with the clinical director of the country's largest GPs co-op, ProCare, about the GP shortage. And we'll discuss this with the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. The professionals of the RNZ ship are the Morning Report team this morning. There's Kim Hill and Susie Ferguson who are with us. Kia ora, Susie. How are you? Kia ora. It's only me, though. Sorry to disappoint. Yeah, no, what? No, no, no. no. You're, you're both doing the show together, aren't you? Yes, but just me here right now. I'm never disappointed. Never when it's Ever. you. Ever. No. <laughs> no, never when it's you. No, just in sport. That's, that's, why, you, that's why you follow sports. We can keep all your disappointments and, and just over the top cheering oh, for things. You know what I mean? That's the why. heartbreak of yesterday, huh? Oh, what is... Oh, don't get me started on Sorry. that. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Boy, I cared, though. For about two hours, I was right into that. I was right in, I was like, what are you doing? And then 8 o'clock came around, and you were like, oh. Yeah. Got the rest well, I'm of the not day to bu- I'm not going to buy another sloth from Costa Rica, I'll tell you that. Right, that's it. Yeah, that'll it. Right, what what do you got happening today? Well, we're going to be speaking to the Australian Foreign Minister on the programme. Penny Wong is meeting with Nanaya Mahuta in Wellington today. She is on... Uh, just after 7 o'clock this morning, also we will be taking a look at the US Federal Reserve. I think it's expected at half past six uh, to sharply raise interest rates. Uh, concerns also that this could lead to a recession will, of course, bring you the very latest on that. Back here also, house prices continuing to fall, homes taking longer to sell. We'll be hearing from Barfoot and Thompson on that. And it is winter, uh, mm. and apparently the winter has arrived in Queenstown bringing the snow and indeed the tourists with it. All of that is coming up after six o'clock Perfect. on Morning Report. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, people have found themselves travelling hundreds of kilometres just to see a GP for a 15-minute consult, and that's due to a dire shortage of doctors. Checkpoint reported yesterday that with no Invercargill GP clinics currently taking enrolments, people are having to travel all the way to Dunedin just to get a checkup. Northlanders are likewise travelling vast distances too. I spoke with the clinical director of New Zealand's largest GP cooperative, ProCare, Alan Moffat, and when we began, I wanted to know whether this situation is being caused by an influx of COVID and flu patients or whether it's just exacerbating existing staff shortages? Yeah, I think it's uh, the latter, really. There's no doubt that COVID's causing a problem with you know absences and, and people being sick, but uh, the reality is that New Zealand doesn't have enough uh, uh, doctors in the community. Why? I mean, I, I mean, we've got med schools and everything. Yes. Uh, well, the med schools probably aren't producing enough to supply the future demand for sort of general practice 
given the big baby boomer, boomer sort of hump that we've got of GPs coming up to retirement. Mm. Even without that, we are already well behind other jurisdictions sort of overseas in terms of the numbers of doctors per population. But certainly for general practice, we've been struggling for a number of years of getting enough graduates to take that up. Why do the graduates not want to be GPs? Is it, excuse me if that's a dumb question for asking, but do, do they just choose to go into other fields? I don't think it's a, a dumb question. Yes, basically other fields are more attractive when you look at the rewards, I suppose, oh, from okay. a general practice point of view. It's not just about the income, it's really about the compliance burden on general practice, the amount of paperwork and mm. non-patient contact time and so forth. On the other hand, you know, it's a really rewarding career. So personally, um, I think that it's a hugely rewarding career. Yeah. So is this a nationwide problem that we are seeing? Yes, it's worse in some areas than others, So, it's, but it's not just a distribution problem. So yes, there are some areas of the country where we have sufficient numbers and particularly urban areas, but mm-hmm. we really do struggle elsewhere in the country. But even if we distributed, you know, evenly the doctors that we do have, we still would be well under the, the rates that we see in most Western countries. So, so what sort of stories are you hearing from patients then of how they're having to deal with this? Well, I think the issue is that patients aren't getting access to care when they need it. And so, you know, we are seeing issues like, you know, not being able to get in to see their GP. Um, certainly hear lots of stories about people in certain areas where they can't even enrol with a practice. So hmm. they're unable to uh, sign up to be able to get access to a, a GP, which means that if they get sick, the options are really just to go to the hospital. Yeah, and, and that's horrible, right, if people are choosing to do the, oh, it's too much trouble, because, you know, the, oh, it's just a little pain, I'll get over it. That's when things turn into bad things, don't they, Alan? Uh, yeah, and that's, you know, the, the reality is, and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but general practice has done a marvellous job in keeping New Zealanders safe in terms of COVID and uh, you know, the response, and that's, that's taken its toll, but it's coped actually very well with that. And uh, I think the sort of services that, that help, there are access to virtual healthcare or what we call telehealth, and that can definitely help. You know, we're seeing an increase in services like CareHQ, which is a, a virtual service that people can ring up and get access to a doctor that's living somewhere else in the country, but can offer still good medical advice to people. So th- those sorts of services can be helpful, but it's not a complete replacement for being able to get care when you need it. Tell us, um, just let, help us understand, Alan, what sort of hours are these GP doctors putting in in these areas where they are very much under stress? I think it varies, and I think what we're seeing is some degree of burnout as well. So the reality is that the the response may well be they get to the point where they just have to start restricting the sort of amount that they are working in order to be able to cope, really. But certainly in rural areas, you know, you you may well be doing um, on-call sort of work in the evenings on a regular sort of basis, and so you can be working quite long hours. But what, uh, I guess people don't see is that uh, long after the the surgery is closed, GPs are at their desk or sometimes at home working on the computer for many hours into the evening. And and that is pretty universal. So as as I've been talking to you, I I hear that, you know, we we do have med schools that turn out fine practitioners, but there's just not enough going towards the, you know, the, the the general practitioner side of things. 
is this something that I mean we can't just all of a sudden produce hundreds of them straight away out of out of med schools can we so can this really only be fixed by more doctors coming from overseas no look I think there's multiple solutions to this and while I think there's no doubt that we do need more doctors I think also that what we describe as a model of care or how we organize the workforce is really important as well. Right. So there is a lot more that can be done by non-medical people. That includes nurses, that includes pharmacists, that includes actually non-regulated workforce, which are people like health coaches and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot more that used properly other people can help with. It's often the public that perhaps perceive they want to see a doctor, but it's not always necessary. I also discussed that GP shortage with the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. But first, I wanted to talk to him about the cabinet reshuffle that happened on Monday, which saw Chris Hipkins become police minister on top of his roles as education minister and public service minister and leader of the House. So I asked him, is there no one around who can take the load off Chippy? Well, actually, somebody did, of course, because he was also the Minister for COVID-19 response until the reshuffle, and that portfolio has gone now to uh, Dr Aisha Verrill. Also, as part of the reshuffle, more of the education responsibilities have gone on to Jan Tanetti, who's the Associate Minister. I think her title now is Associate Minister School Operations, and so... Chris has definitely got some support there, um, but yep, he does have a big load. He's a very capable uh, minister, as everybody knows, and I think one with a real interest in the police uh, portfolio. He actually has got a degree in criminology, and um, he's really looking forward to getting into that work, and not just in terms of the police, but the broader justice work and special, especially areas like youth justice. So yep, he's a busy man, but you know the old saying, you give a job to a busy person and they'll get it done. But is, is there, was, was there no thought at all to share it around a little? Oh, look, we do share the portfolios around. And if you go through the ministerial list, many ministers have got multiple portfolios. It's the nature of a you know a 20-person cabinet plus the, the ministers we've got outside. So everybody is generally carrying at least two or three portfolios. Education, public service, Chris has been doing both of those portfolios for a long time now. Taking the police on is really a swap in a way for the COVID portfolio, which, as I say, has, got, has gone off to Dr Verrill. Because when the Prime Minister moved Portal Williams along, or Minister Williams along, she did mention you know a lack of focus in the police portfolios being a thing. So I, I look at that and I go, how is Chris Hipkins more focused when the police portfolio is only 25% of his job? Yeah, I, I don't think that's entirely what she meant by that. I think what she was talking about there was within the police portfolio, getting the focus on to you know, some of the issues that we want around um, criminal activity we've seen lately, some of the youth crime issues, those sorts of things. And so I think it was more about that rather than the individual minister's focus. Uh, minister Williams, I think, agreed with the Prime Minister that it was time for, for her to do something different and allow uh, another person to come in and, and take on those issues um, with a you know with a focus on those areas as opposed to some of the broader issues that Minister Williams had been brought in to help out with, which were around things like the police culture and and the change and shift in some of the ways that they were going about their jobs. Okay, hey, um, we've also started to learn too about the extent of of the GP shortage in New Zealand. I should say that bit rather than a, a doctor shortage. I mean, Checkpoint reported last night they had people driving from Invercargill to Dunedin just to see a GP, and this, we've had warnings about this for for months. How did it get so bad and and what are you guys doing to fix that 
Yeah, well, in fact, the warnings have not been for months. The warnings have been for years. I can actually remember when I was briefly the Labour Party's health spokesperson in opposition, and one of the big issues there was people getting access to GPs. You know, we have had a shortage in not just doctors, but actually a number of health professions um, for a considerable amount of time now. We've been training more people, recruiting more people over the last few years, and, and in fact, you know, around about, I think, 10,000 more people in the health workforce since when we took office. But unfortunately, with COVID and the borders being shut, that's meant that some of the workforce we have brought in in terms of doctors and nurses, we haven't had access to. So we're definitely working on that. We will see more people coming in. But unfortunately, right now, we haven't been able to make up for all of the difference it takes. Unfortunately, not fortunate. Unfortunately, it's actually fortunate that it takes at least six years to train a doctor because we want them to be well trained. In the absence of being able able to bring in already trained doctors from overseas. We've definitely, you know, feeling the effects of that now, but we are training and recruiting more doctors. Okay, just sticking with the Ministry of Health thing, I see the, um, the, the there was a review that found the Ministry of Health failed to properly estimate the, the country's COVID-19 PCR testing capacity, and then, you know, labs got, got swamped with, with Omicron cases. Do, do you regret how that was handled? And have you guys looked it over and gone, we can fix this or make, you know, make sure something like this doesn't happen again? Yeah, look, the reason we know about this is because there was an independent report done uh, into this by Alan and Clark, and, and that uh, report did highlight the fact that the ministry was caught on the hop. Um, we obviously had a significant increase in the rate of positive tests as the wave, as the Omicron wave was arriving. What we'd been doing up to then was a practice called pooling of tests, and basically what that means is a number of samples all get tested together. If there's a positive one, then we separate them out and look for the positive test within the pooled sample. Once we started to get more and more positive tests, that just became an unviable way of of approaching it. But unfortunately, the system wasn't set up to then ramp up. Eventually it did, but it took too long. Uh, Ashley Bloomfield and the Ministry of Health have absolutely recognised that they could and should have done better. The report's very clear about the lessons and the recommendations here. And I think we're learning a lot, as we have through COVID, about the fact that we do need to be more resilient when it comes to being ready for a pandemic or a major outbreak of a disease. And and a good example of that is having sufficient testing capacity. Um, I'm pretty sure those lessons have been well learned now. Yeah, I mean, although I see there was media reports that the pre-departure testing, which is for incoming passengers to New Zealand, could be set to go as soon as next week. Is, is that correct? Yeah, look, there'll be an announcement about that very soon. Um, You will have seen around the world, many countries are now moving to abandon the pre-departure testing regime. Um, When we were doing PCR testing, we obviously had a a fairly accurate uh, level of testing with rapid antigen tests. While it's helpful, clearly with the volumes of tourists and people coming backwards and forwards, it becomes less efficient, less efficacious, as they say, in terms of giving us good health data and outcomes. We have always been guided by our health advisors, our science advisors, and we've been having an ongoing conversation about that, and there will be an announcement very shortly. Okay. The AA says that if that fuel tax is reintroduced, at the end of August, fuel could go up to like four bucks a litre. Are you going to keep the tax off? What are your expectations as far as fuel prices go when you look around the world? 
Well, if the AA have got a crystal ball, I'd love to get hold of it because I'm not sure anyone really knows with fuel prices. I've seen estimates of it going up more. I've seen estimates of it staying about the same. Look, we continue to keep that under watch. The reason we did extend it by a couple more months was firstly because we could see that there was, at that point, prices were still elevated. Also, we were waiting for the the new cost of living payment to kick in for people who earn less than $70,000. That'll happen from the beginning of August. So that will offset some of this for some people. But we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Um, Fuel prices are very, very high, and we no doubt understand the impact on people. So we'll review that decision as we get closer towards uh, those dates in August. But there is other support coming along uh, as well. Finally, sad scenes in in, um, in Qatar. Uh, The all-whites there. Were we robbed of a World Cup spot there by that ref? You know, I know as I'm sports minister, I'm probably supposed to be diplomatic about these matters, but we were certainly robbed of a goal that that the All-Whites deserved to get. I didn't get to watch all of the game. I had to head off to work, but I was watching at that moment. And in real time, it is quite clear to me that that was not a foul. I'm not a soccer expert, a football expert, but... Actually, if you look at it in slow motion, the New Zealand player was falling because he'd been shoved and then himself grabbed out. And because he grabbed out, I imagine that's why it got reversed. It was a terrible decision. But as the All-Whites themselves have acknowledged, you know, you've got to – they also had to convert the other chances that they got – I thought in the bit that I saw, they played some incredible football, and I was actually really proud of the All-Whites – team and what I've seen of them of late there there's some amazing footballers there the skill level's high and um, they created a lot of chances and I think we can be incredibly proud of the performance that they put out but definitely that goal should have stood mm, Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson I'm looking forward to sanctions for wherever that ref was from finally this morning some of your feedback Hera says kia ora Nathan I love Shane Retty criticising the government who are still catching up on national shocking neglect particularly at Middlemore down south we've seen it uh, I was talking about team building exercises and a whole bunch of people in Switzerland burnt their feet because the team building exercise said go do that you'll you'll have a better connectivity about sales Angela in Rotorua says maybe the point behind the hot coals was to solve the problem of cold feet good point anonymous texter says Nathan RE smart appliances and spying so what's smart indeed Morning Report is next with Susie and Kim from all of us here at First Up we'd like to remind you you can listen to us 24-7 on First Up the podcast otherwise we'll be back in your ears up hop hop